We continue in the book of Acts, and last week and this week are kind of a pair of passages. We broke it up because we had things that Jim needed to say last week um, about this, this giant bedsheet full of delicious uh, forbidden foods, um, which, which most people who've lived on a diet know what that looks like. And um, Peter has this dream, and the punchline of the dream was that God declared all foods clean. And Peter was a bit confused. This happens three times because it's such a big reveal, it takes a bit of getting used to. And right at the end of this, representatives from the house of Cornelius, a righteous Gentile, appear. And when they appear, Peter realizes that it's not exactly foods that God has declared clean, it's people. That God doesn't judge people based on um, ceremonial laws anymore. And so Peter realizes, oh, this is going down. And so he goes to visit the house of Cornelius, and when he's there, he's going to preach. Um, and so this is great news. The gospel is coming to Gentiles, people like us. And now what? Um, how are we supposed to talk to these Gentiles? What are we supposed to do with them when they join us? Uh, and the truth of the matter is, is that the rest of the book of Acts is going to try and answer these hard questions. What do we do with the people now that they're here? But for us today, I want to focus on how um, it is in the passage we're about to read that we are going to witness the first attempts to explain the gospel to outsiders. This is, this is an interesting passage because this is, Peter's faced with an interesting first-time problem. Every other time he's preached, he's preached to insiders. Now he's preaching to proper outsiders. Uh, and this tells us, something about, um, it tells us something about what's in his head, and we get to ask some big questions. So let's read the passage first. I'm going to ask Rachel the Cronin uh, to come. <laughs> and uh, we're going to read Acts 10, 34 to 11, 1. And we're going to read it from the screen, I believe. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, everyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. 
Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. Thank you. Excellently done. Excellently done. So um, I think I've got three questions that come to me when I'm reading this passage, and we're going to use them just to talk about how we think about this today. Um, And so things will be a little more theological and reflective, and I think that's okay. So the first question I want to ask is, what does Peter think of as the gospel? Peter's been tasked to preach the gospel, and we have some idea of this is what Peter thinks the good news is. So let's think about that. Second question is, what kind of hearer does Peter have in view? He tailors his message to his audience, and he expects certain information and knowledge in them. We can think about what kind of audience Peter's talking to. And then third, and most excitingly, what is the Spirit doing? Uh, And that's what we get to finish with. So let's begin with what Peter thinks of as the gospel. I am not sure, um, I'm not sure of your state in faith. I'm not sure those of you who've committed to believe in Jesus, or those of you who haven't, for those of you who have committed to believe, I'm not sure how you heard the gospel first time around. But there are a few very popular, very common ways that this gets told. One of them is called the Romans Road. Is anyone familiar with the Romans Road? Okay, older heads nod. Bless you. All right, um, it's these, there's some tracks, and what they do is they lay out a series of passages from the book of Romans that lead inevitably to your conver- conversion to faith. Like, it's just, it's magic. It works, doesn't work, okay? Uh, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, and Christ died for us while we were yet sinners, and whoever calls on the Lord's name will be saved, and if you confess and believe with your mouth, you will be saved, and there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. All those came from Romans, and if I lead you through them in a structured way, the expectation is that you'll come to faith, and this is one of the ways. Uh, Another extremely common way is the four spiritual laws. I see also some heads nodding and saying, oh, yes, these, which begin with, and I, this, it's funny, it's not funny. It begins with the words, it begins with the words, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, which I don't know about you, but when I reminded this, it's become kind of a cultural joke about Christian evangelism, that this begins how we begin these things. It's not, I mean, it's, it's interesting. So law one, God loves you. Law two, you're bad and sinful. Law three, Jesus is the only way. Law four, believe Jesus and be saved. Okay? And so I lead you through these four spiritual laws, and boom, uh, you are also a Christian. Or um, there is, and this is the, um, you know, the Billy Graham Crusade has done more to preach the gospel, like in terms of big audiences. That's an amazing group. And uh, they've got a standard prayer they lead people through, and it goes like this. This is actually the Billy Graham prayer. Not actually as if like startlingly, but this is their actual prayer. I didn't make it up. Lord Jesus Christ, I'm sorry for the things I have done wrong in my life. I ask your forgiveness and now turn from everything which I know is wrong. Thank you for dying on the cross for me to set me free from my sins. Please come into my life and fill me with your Holy Spirit and be with me forever. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, I'm not sure how you encountered the gospel or what form that was in, and I, I don't want to, um, I'm, not, I'm not throwing mud at any of these methods, but I do want to point out that they look very little like what Peter does in this passage. Now, what Peter thinks of as the gospel, it doesn't bear a ton of similarity with how we have popularly talked about the gospel. And I think that's something that we need to think about. So let's actually go through this uh, passage again, and we're going to go verse by verse through uh, the preaching and just make some brief comments about it, and then I'll come back and make some kind of bigger comments. So verse 36, uh, Peter kind of begins his message. Um, This is the opening gambit. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. The parentheses are a bit awkward in the text. It's just kind of like an added phrase describing who Jesus is. 
And I think the thing we have to note is that Israel is at the forefront of the gospel presentation. This is a word that was given to Israel. Uh, It's given historically to the people of Israel, to the nation of Israel. This is an Israelite story that we're becoming part of. And within this Jewish story, there is this person, Jesus, Messiah. And Messiah is is a label for kingship. Jesus, the anointed king of Israel. And then he is also Lord of all. So the astonishing fact is that this, Israel, this obscure Israelite king is actually king of the world. And this is the claim that Peter begins to make. So we have to remember this is, first of all, a nationalistic story. And then it has a nationalistic story with global implications. And that's where Peter begins. So let's go to the next verse, verse 37. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. You yourselves know. Peter is assuming that his entire audience already knows the basics of the story. They've heard about all of it. Now, he's dealing with, uh, I didn't cover this, but Jim covered it last week. Um, He's dealing with a group of righteous Gentiles. Cornelius has helped to build a synagogue. Um, He's well-loved by the people. He lives at peace. He's Roman, but he lives at peace uh, with the Jews around him. He's well-respected. And apparently, he knows a lot about the Israelite story. He also knows a lot about the Jesus story, beginning at these things. Now, it's worth noting that the gospel proclamation begins with history. Hey, these things happened. Stuff happened, and it's stuff that matters that happened, and this is well-known history. Uh, And they're familiar not only with Jesus, but with John's baptism, which means they're familiar with the ministry of renewal and repentance that began all these things. So this is pretty comprehensive knowledge on the part of his audience. Okay, let's go to 38. Uh, You know how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So not only do they have a familiarity with Israel and Israel's story and Israel's God, they also have familiarity with the ministry of Jesus, that Jesus was anointed by... This is common knowledge, that Jesus was walking around healing people. In fact, he doesn't mention the healings, does he? He mentions the demonized. He mentions liberation of the demonized as as one of the key facts of Jesus' life, uh, that God was with him. I think that's actually interesting. Uh, anointing in the Hebrew world, anointing by the Spirit, if you read your Old Testaments, it is often linked with, with prophecy and with kingship. Uh, David and Saul are the most prominently anointed for people for leadership in the text. And I think that mentioning the demonized ex- uh, points to the extent of Jesus' lordship. He's lord not only of the whole world, he's also lord of the spirit world. Uh, and this is part of the proclamation that the the scope of Jesus' kingship is quite a bit bigger than you might think. It's interesting. Let's go to 39, and this we're going to break into two parts. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. Full stop. Let's wait there. Um, Peter's testimony is, I saw it. Not just I, but we saw it. We were there. Um, We give you firsthand accounts of the goings-on. If you, if you go back in your Bible later and you open up 1 John 1, there's this lovely opening phrase in the first letter of, in first letter of John, which is that we've seen in our eyes and touched with our hands and heard with our ears. He's saying, I was there. And that's the, I'm carrying the testimony personally for these things. It's fantastic. And Peter's saying the exact same thing. And the first gospel proclamations were always personal testimonies of an eyewitness event. Uh, Now, the second half of this is they put him on a tree, put him to death by hanging him on a tree, or literally on a piece of wood. Um, 
for many people, this is the key gospel moment. This is the key proclamation of Jesus. And yet Peter just moves right past it. It's just, yeah, this happened. Um, and that's, um, that's interesting. And I think it's worth noting that, that someone dying is not very good news. I mean, death happens all the time. The death rate, with the exception of, in fact, for humanity, the death rate sits at a comfortable 100%. This is the most unsurprising news in the world that Jesus died. It's what happened next that was astonishing. And so let's go to verse 40. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Now, he's alive. That is the most exciting part of the story is that Jesus is alive and that the death didn't stop him. And this extends further to suggest that he's not only Lord of Gentiles and Jews and not only Lord in the spirit world, but he's Lord of life and death. And so the scope of the kingship of Jesus keeps getting bigger and more astonishing. And this is, this is part of what's amazing. Once again, we have chosen witnesses uh, that they get to see these things. And note that what they witnessed to is that we ate and drank with him. In other words, he ain't no ghost. He has a body, and he ate fish, and we touched him, and we hung out with him, and he's real. And so this is part of their witness, part of their first testimony. Uh, let's go on to 42. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Uh, those of you who have seen the Blues Brothers can hear the Belushi Brothers saying, we're on a mission from God. Uh, this is the new mission. They've got it. We've been appointed. And now he is also judge of the living and the dead. He's judge over all. Uh, scope has been expanded quite extensively. There's almost no realm of the known world where Jesus is not Lord at the moment, um, which is an occasion for both fear and wonder and worship on our part. All right, lastly, verse 43, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This apparently is finally whatever the good news might be in this story, that uh, all the prophets bear witness. In other words, everything you've read about, because they only have the Old Testament, everything you've read about is true in Jesus, and that everyone who believes in him, in this person Jesus, who's the fulfillment of these prophecies, receives forgiveness of sins. Um, I'm not sure what sins Peter has in mind relative to the Gentiles. Uh, the Jews have a code of law which clarifies what sin is. Disobey the law and you've sinned. The Jews are not, uh, the Gentiles are not under covenant obligation. So they don't have sin in the same way. So what is the forgiveness? Forgiveness for existing as Gentiles? Uh, forgiveness, you know, we'll forgive you for not being Jewish, right? Uh, there's some weirdness, and I'm not going to suggest that I have the answers to this right now. But it's just, I just I want you to know that when you read this verse, it's weird. And it's worth, it's not quite so simple as saying, you too can be forgiven. Something else may be going on here. It bears, it bears reflecting about. All right, let me say some summary things for a moment about what Peter thinks of as his gospel. First, I think I've got three things to say. First, it seems to me that Peter's proclamation majors on the life of Jesus and not the death of Jesus. Proclaiming the good news is proclaiming the good news of the living Jesus and of his whole life. In fact, if you read it, most of the apostolic preaching focuses on Christ's life. Not to the exclusion of his death on the cross, but they're so excited that he's alive. And you would be too, if your best friend had died and come back to life and was now the Lord of all. <laughs> like you'd, be, <laughs> you'd be pretty stoked about that. 
Now, the proclamation, I think we've made clear, also seems to center on the lordship of Jesus. He's Lord of Israel. He's Lord of the nations. He's Lord of the spirit world. He's Lord of death. He's Lord of life. And therefore, he is judge of all. Um, The proclamation of Jesus is the proclamation of a wide-ranging Jesus. I think that's worth keeping in mind. Second, Peter doesn't seem to preach an individual salvation. It's the kingdom of God and the people of God which is in play. Um, Many of us have received faith in a kind of very, it's me and my Jesus way. And the gospel seems to be, come be part of the kingdom of God. Come join the community of people for whom these things are going on. And we must remember that this is a nationalistic story. Nationalism is a very unhappy word these days, right? Like you may think nationalism and you picture people waving Union Jacks in Scotland, right? That's, that's a, not a good thing, right? And, um, and maybe that's the kind of thing you have in mind. And yet, uh, the, the, and Jewish nationalism can be weird, but the Jewish nationalism that centers on Jesus as king is kind of what we're supposed to have. He's Lord of all. And his kingdom extends to the entire earth. And that's uncomfortable. And it's worth being uncomfortable with, I think. Uh, Mortimer Arias is a guy who wrote a book called Announcing the Reign of God. And in it, he makes a fascinating observation. Is that when Jesus comes preaching the gospel in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he says, the kingdom of God is near. And when the apostles start preaching, they seem to not pick up on the kingdom of God is near. What they say instead is, the king is here. And that's the key transformation of the resurrection of Jesus. The kingdom of God is near, Jesus says, and the apostles show up and say, the king is here. Let's change our lives because he's here. Third thing I wanted to say about Peter's proclamation is that the gospel is the whole story of Jesus' life. It isn't just the cross. It begins in Israel with John's baptism, with Jesus' receipt of power from God, with his miracles and ministry, with opposition to him that leads to his death and to his amazing resurrection, all entrusted to chosen witnesses. The gospel is the whole story, not just one piece of it. There is no gospel, furthermore, apart from the witnesses who bring it to us, who connect us to that story. It's eyewitness accounts that begin this and hold us together. And I think it's interesting that Peter seems to ask an awful lot of his audience. His, uh, his anticipation of how much they understand is, in my mind, very high. And he preaches, um, his preaching looks very little like what our preaching would commonly look like to people who are proper outsiders. We have to begin with a lot more information. And this begs a further, and this is our second overall question. What kind of hearer does Peter have in view? What kind of hearer? Now, I'm not going to repeat reading the whole passage. I'm just going to bring some summary comments which I think is this. First of all, Peter expects his hearers to be familiar with Moses uh, and Israel. He expects them to be familiar with the Jewish story. This is a Jewish-friendly group. They know about Israel. They've built a synagogue, so they're already on board. They're familiar with Israelite scripture, the the three-quarters of your Bible that sits unread most often at the front half, right? That's the part they know is the Bible. They are familiar with Israelite hopes, of restoration, of kingship, which is odd because as a Roman centurion being familiar with the hope of Israelite kingship, there's kind of some conflict of interest, it seems to me. And apparently, they already worship Yahweh. They're already worshipers of the one true God, although they're not part of the covenant people. That is, for most people, if you meet them on the street, you're like, do you worship God? <laughs> you know? Do you worship Yahweh of the Old Testament? They're going to be like, are you crazy? Uh, And so here we have a very interesting, very curated group of people. 
Second is that Peter expects his hearers to be familiar with Jesus. They've been hearing about the reputation of this Jesus guy. They know about John's renewal movement. They've heard about the spirit, especially about the miracles. And they know about the crucifixion and death of Jesus. They may not know that Jesus is alive. That's interesting as well. Um, And it seems to me this is a place where maybe we can do a slightly better job. People can hear about the things Jesus is still doing in our midst. And they can hear the reputation of transformed lives and healed bodies and of people who are moved and shaped by the person of the risen Christ. So there's a little more hope, but it's still uh, maybe, uh, maybe a big ask on our part. Third, because of the vision of the sheet, Peter expects God to do something in this group. I think that's interesting. Peter has the sheet come down three times in the previous passage. It goes up, and at the end of it, he says, I see that God's declared all foods clean. And he's convinced. It's an interesting note. Um, He may not quite understand what's going to happen, but he's not as surprised. I like, uh, so 1034, uh, Peter says the words, now I see that God shows no partiality. This is the beginning of his sermon. I see that God, this is it, I'm ready for what God's about to do. And then at the end of the passage, the Holy Spirit drops, and stuff happens. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed. Note who was not amazed. Peter was not amazed. Everybody else was going, and Peter's like, yep. He's on board. He'd already been convinced, and he saw what God was about to do. It's pretty cool. Once again, bringing this to us today, when we share the good news, do our hearers know the story of Israel? Very rarely. Do they know Moses and the law? Chances are not at all. Are they already worshipers of Yahweh? I mean, unless you're in Israel talking to practicing Jews, it's very unlikely. Are they familiar with Jesus? Well, they might know like a popular blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus, but they probably aren't familiar with, with Jesus, Jesus. Uh, they may know that he died. Most people seem to know that, but do they know that he's alive? And so we come at the gospel from very different places. And this leads me to a question further. What's the importance of pre-educating people for the gospel? How much do we think people need to know before they can believe? Do you need to know about Israel? Do you need to know about Yahweh? Do you need to believe in God before you can believe in Jesus as God? And we just subvert your God belief in certain ways? Um, Have you heard about the resurrection? What what kind of pre-education is required? Or even more significant question, how much do you need to know to be saved? How much knowledge are you supposed to have, right? I'm at this lovely point in my life where I've got some letters in front of my name, R-E-V, right? And I'm in a degree program so I can get some more letters after my name, Ph.D. At some point, will I know enough to finally be saved, right? Or will the letters come between me and salvation? (laughs) That's a a problem, isn't it? How much do you need to know? Do you need to become Jewish first? Uh, Do you need to be circumcised? This is... (laughs) (laughs) You know, Phil, the strength of your no tells me this may be an idol in your heart. <laughs> there's, uh, there's, never mind. Okay. <laughs> Is it possible for your knowledge to get you in or keep you out of the kingdom of God? This is really, really crucial question. Um, what about someone like the thief on the cross? He doesn't seem to know very much at all. He just says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, today you're with me in paradise. 
So it seems like the threshold is quite low, right? He didn't even get baptized, <gasps> right? There's, there's some real questions about this stuff. Now, I'm not going to lie to you and tell you that there are easy answers to these questions. I don't think there are. Uh, but I do need you to know that in thinking about them, we're not alone, and much of the remainder of Acts is going to wrestle with these questions. How much do you need to know? How Jewish do you need to be? Uh, and this is what the early church was on about. So stay with us, and we'll go through these things later. But I will make two suggestions. First, it seems clear to me that our appreciation of the good news as good news is tied to our readiness to receive it. Our appreciation of the good news as good news is tied to our readiness. The more we know, the better the news is. And so there's an incentive. The more like Cornelius and company we are, the more like ripe kindling for the Spirit will be. He drops on us and lights us on fire. And I think that's important. And this suggests to me that if you want more Spirit, you might need to be more like Cornelius and his company. Maybe there's a link there for us. Second, it seems also clear to me that God's acceptance of people in salvation is not exactly knowledge dependent. He's not terribly worried about quite how much you know. You can get all the answers right, and you can be on the outside of the kingdom. And that's a very sobering thought for people in professional theology like me. You can have lots of answers wrong and be on the inside. You're no, having right notions doesn't seem to be entirely uh, appropriate. You don't have to have all the right answers. In fact, and I think this is good news, you can be incapable of thinking through all the answers. You could be a child, you could be mentally handicapped, you could be in the throes of Alzheimer's and dementia, and I don't think that God is going to reject your faith. He accepts the faith you offer in those places. And I think we have to hold on to that, because then it's up to us to have perfect notions, and then we get terrified for people who are impartial. I think of the vineyard motto we have here, that it's better to be merciful than right. And having the right heart is more important than having all the right ideas about things. We want right ideas, but we want to have right hearts as we deal with those ideas. And now this is really important, and I'm going to say it twice. That's how important I think it is. We are bound in faith to strive to grow in good knowledge. We are bound in faith to lay aside childish and foolish notions, while at the same time being gracious to all learners and continually submitting ourselves to the Spirit and the apostolic witness. Like I said, I'm going to say that one more time. We are bound in faith to strive to grow in good knowledge, to lay aside childish and foolish notions, and while at the same time being gracious to all learners, and submitting ourselves to the Spirit and the apostolic witness. You, you don't get to th say, oh, I'm just going to be love Jesus and be ignorant. Like, loving Jesus means a transformation of your mind as well as your heart and a growth in knowledge and obedience. And this is crucial. Last question is, what's the Spirit doing? Um, I'm going to actually not reread the passage, 1044 to 111. Uh, the Spirit drops. They speak in tongues. They prophesy. The circumcised Jews with them go, oh, my word. And Peter's like, can we stop them? Let's baptize them and get them caught up. Right? It's, it's all out of order. It's a great moment of the Spirit doing things in his own way rather than by how we think things should be done. And what is he doing? He is breaking all the rules. This is not the way it's supposed to work. The Spirit is a gift for God's people, a gift that anoints for worship, for unity, for leadership, prophecy, power, and for mission. If he's fallen on the Gentiles, then that means they're part of the worship of God, and they're part of the unity of God's people. 
And they're anointed for leadership? And the Gentiles are anointed for prophecy? Oh, boy. And the Gentiles are also anointed for power, and that means they're part of the mission? And this is what's so astonishing. The astonishment of the circumcised is totally rational. It makes perfect sense. Because this is an absolute uh, mind explosion on their part. What is the Spirit doing? He's doing what he does. Uh, one of my favorite verses is Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Uh, Paul writes, In him you also, in Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In these somewhat awkward words, because people don't translate Ephesians very well, there are three very clear verbs. Um, in him you also, when you heard the gospel of your salvation, and believed... Uh, you were sealed. Three actions that lead us into faith. You heard the good news, not all who hear believe. Hearing you believe, believing you're sealed by the Spirit. And the Spirit binds you into the inheritance of resurrection until the time of the resurrection comes. And that's great. Uh, and so why does the Holy Spirit fall on this group of Gentiles uh, before they've declared their belief? Apparently they've believed in their hearts and God is doing the stuff already. And now God is ratifying them for his people. And he's sealing the Gentiles to himself. And because if the Spirit drops, who can argue with you? They've got the Spirit, I guess. I guess God sealed them for himself. The Spirit then is now is the sign of covenant inclusion. His presence indicates that these two are my people, inheritors of my resurrection, and they are bound to me in life. All right, let me sum up. Peter gets some astonishing news. All foods are clean, but by all foods we mean the Gentiles. Peter preaches to outsiders for the first time. The gospel is the whole life of Christ, the whole history of Israel, told as the good news to Christ's chosen witnesses. The ideal hearers apparently know something of Yahweh, of Israel, and of Jesus already, and God seals his people with his spirit. So, we also have received the spirit. He's present among us. And the question falls to us, do we know the gospel like Peter preached it? Are we the kind of audience like Cornelius and company were. It's possible that like Cornelius, uh, we haven't been as attentive, unlike Cornelius, we have not been as attentive to the bigger story or even to the story of Jesus. And so let's not take the spirit for granted. And in view of this, I think the challenge to us may be to live worthy of the gospel message. Um, let's just, uh, I'm gonna put Romans 11, 17 and 18 up. This is Paul speaking about this vine and branches business. He says, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, the story of God's salvation to Israel, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. This is among the most dire warnings in the entire New Testament, that if you boast that we have the spirit, we don't need anything else, Paul says, guess what? God can uproot you quickly. And so having the Spirit produce fruit. Having the Spirit be the kind of hearers that God expects you to be. And don't trust necessarily in just the presence of past experiences. We have to transform and allow ourselves to be transformed. And I think this passage is helpful because it shows us some of the parameters of that transformation. The gospel is the good news of the life of Jesus. Jesus is alive. Let's live like it. Let's live like he's alive and doing things because he is, not as if. Let's live because he is alive. And the gospel is good news. Let's be people who know the whole story of the life of Jesus. 
Let's be good hearers. And let's become ripe kindling for the Spirit to pour on us in fresh and astonishing ways. Um, my final word before I pray for you all is simply this, is that sometimes, unhelpfully, we've been led to think that mind and heart are separated or can be separated. And that the formation of our minds is somehow a different thing from the formation of hearts. Uh, but the medievals in particular had a lovely word, the intellect, which is the spiritual mind, which binds mind and heart and is the place where the spirit can meet and transform us. And I want to invite you to be transformed in your intellect. To let the spirit do the work of, of working from your top to your middle to your, I mean, all parts of you. To transform you to be the kind of people he wants you to be. Uh, we're going to enter in a time of prayer right now. Um, I, I may have said, I may have helped some of you to sleep this morning, and that's fine if I did. Um, if you just woke up and are just coming with us, now's your moment to get prayer for whatever you need. Uh, and I encourage you to come forward to this place where we're going to pray for people. Um, members of our home groups will come forward and pray for you. They've been trained to pray. Uh, and if there's anything on your heart or mind this morning that needs to be lifted up to Jesus, if you'd like to hear from the Lord, if you'd like to uh, bind yourself in a fresh way to his people, if you'd like something you need to surrender, you need someone to pray with you, you just want an encouraging word, come forward this morning and receive that prayer. Would you stand with me? And I'll pray for you all. Well, Lord Jesus, as, as Caitlin prayed this morning, you are already here. And you are already with us. And I pray that you make yourself known in a fresh way to us. I thank you for your word that instructs and guides us. I pray that we would be, have a kind of glorious conviction to spend more time in it. To love your word and to love your story. Because it's the story that makes sense of our lives. Um, anoint this community as we head into the summer, Lord. And give us a sense of buoyancy as we try to walk in step with you where you go. And now I pray for this time of worship and time of prayer. That those who need to meet you will meet you. And those who need to hear from you will hear from you. In the name of Jesus I pray. Amen.